And so each time we begin to immerse ourselves into our uncharted inheritance, the unchanging epigraph to our study of our inheritance in Christ Jesus, you will read Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So that we, as members of the body of Christ, partake with Christ in all that was written about him in Scripture, we will continue our study in the direction of our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and what we must do on our end so that we receive the right to set aside our former way of life so that we can be clothed in a new way of life. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. So doing something that we don't understand, to not evangelize and so forth, but this is referring to setting aside the former way of life of our old man. Imagine people who went to evangelism but did not set aside their former way of life. They knew slogans, they read it, but they don't know what old man this is, how to act toward him, and how to take off his image. They absolutely do not understand how they can be renewed in the spirit of their mind, what they must do in order to do this. They don't know how to be clothed into the new man who is created by God in righteousness and holiness of truth. This isn't their goal or their calling. And we know that this is our calling. Jesus said, all right, well, you will gain the whole world. And so what? And then what? You will go to eternal perdition. And then why did you do all of this? Our calling is to be called into the new man or to adopt our body in the redemption of Christ. For the fulfillment of this commanding commandment, we know that there are three basic commands and verbs that are involved. This is to set aside, renew, and to clothe. And we've noted that answering these fateful questions will determine whether we turn ourselves into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath, or rather, will we perfect the salvation that is given to us in the format of a deposit, or will we waste it? because of which our names would forever be blotted out of the Book of Life, although at one point they were written there. In a certain format, we've already studied the first two questions and have stopped to study the third question, and specifically, what conditions must we fulfill so that through our renewed thinking we could begin the process of clothing ourselves into the powers of our new man who is created by God in Christ Jesus in true righteousness and holiness of truth. With regard to this, we have already stopped to study the condition that is contained in the 18th Psalm of David, in which the Holy Spirit unveils the conditions thanks to which our prayer of faith can cooperate with the name of God Most High or the name of God El Elyon, so that with a noise we can take off the old man and cast him into hell, and then replace the power of death in our body with the kingdom of heaven and the dignity of the power of eternal life. 
воздвигнуть Царство Небесное в достоинстве державы жизни вечной and we've stopped to study the following condition. This condition is contained in the 18th Psalm of David, in which the Holy Spirit, with wisdom and authority only inherent to him, unveils the requirements on the basis of which our prayer of faith must cooperate with the name of God, El Elyon, or name of God, Most High. And in Hebrew, again, this name of God, Most High, is El Elyon. And this condition is comprised of us and our distress upon taking off the old man, it's comprised of us being able to call out to the Most High, like to our God, and proclaim the faith of our heart in who God is for us in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and who we are for God in Christ Jesus. We've noted that this parable is one of the strongest images that portrays the collaboration of our renewed thinking in the image of King David with the name of God Most High and resistance against our carnal mind in the image of King Saul and reigning sin in the face of the old man with his works. And we know that in our body there are three kingdoms that war with one another, three kings that exist in one body. Obviously, each one contends and fights for the body. Each one fights for the body. The battle is being waged for the body. The Son of God, if he would need to have, we needed to have redeem our spirit, he wouldn't need the body. But because he needed to save our bodies, and the goal was to adopt our bodies with his redemption so that it could become an eternal temple for God in which he intends to dwell, that's why he died in the body. Obviously, when he died, he died in, in his spirit, soul, and body. But if he would need to redeem just our spirit, he would have no need to um, take upon the body of man. That's why in order to redeem the body, spirit and soul, he died in the body. And through the proclamation of the faith of our heart in who God is for us in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and who we are for God in Christ Jesus, God receives the foundation to step into battle over our earthly bodies and destroy sin in our body in the face of the old man with the power of his redemption and with a noise forever cast him into hell. This is the calling of every believer who has come to God. If this calling um, is replaced with something else, with other virtues that might seem good, you know, evangelism, the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this isn't bad. But if the gifts of the Holy Spirit, evangelism, takes a priority, then they become idols. They cease to be virtues. Only when our priority is our calling to adopt our bodies in the redemption of Christ, and only then will the following follow. As soon as we accept this prom promise into our heart by faith, we already become a light. 
And therefore, we evangelize. We don't need to run anywhere. We don't need to go anywhere. We already evangelize them. The sun doesn't need to go anywhere. It has its own circle, its own where it, its influence on earth. God has made it so, so that every person living on this earth that is his light, he needs this, uh, these people to be in their places. He doesn't need them to leave their families. Let him be a light in his house, in his church. Let him be a light for his children, for his wife, for her husband. This is very important to understand that we become a light only after we die to our nation, the house of our father, and our corrupt desires. In this time, our conscience is cleansed from dead works, and that's not all. We're not yet a light. Our conscience is cleansed from dead works. We are not yet a light at this point. Because we need to place the light of truth in there, the teaching, the reigning teaching of Christ in its 12 foundations, the 12 foundations of New Jerusalem. And only then, after they are engraved there, then we need to accept the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life. He will never come and will never be found in the heart of a person where there is no truth in the heart. He goes only there where there is truth. He works only with truth, and he will reveal truth in the hearts. When the Holy Spirit comes and we accept him as the Lord and ruler of our life, and he begins to unveil truth to us, we become a light. It is at that moment that we become a light, and only then we begin to grow in faith. This is a very important part, a very important aspect of our life. And if the children of God do not understand it, do not hear this, all that they do today is in vain. They don't even know that they are marching into hell. They don't even understand that the works that they do come not from God, but from their flesh, although they might seem good on the outside. The good works that seem good on the outside, when they come from the flesh, they can be perdition for us, calamity for us, and they will not allow us to receive salvation for our bodies. And therefore, according to its character, the prayer song of David contains three parts in which the standard of the character of a just prayer is presented. The first part defines the state of David's heart as a warrior of prayer which is the foundation for the just status of his prayer and, of course, our status of our prayer. If our heart is a state of a warrior of prayer, if our heart is a house of prayer, the temple where we come to pray, then our prayer, the prayer that we communicate to God, will, will be correct. But if our heart does, is not a temple, if we are not a warrior of prayer, however much we may speak the word of God, however much we pray fast, we will end up in calamity. We can live normally, dress normally, eat normally, be in our own place, not go anywhere, and become a warrior of prayer, and pray like priests pray. When they go into the tabernacle, they don't represent their own interests, they represent the interests of God. The priests study what God wants, what the will of God is, and they go to intercede so that this word of God is fulfilled. And therefore, the second part 
provides a basis for God to deliver David from the hands of his enemies and the hands of Saul. The third part is a message that illustrates the prayer battle itself that is beyond understanding to the mind of man, because it is written in an epic genre, it's a story. In a certain format, we've already studied the first part and have stopped to study the second part, which unveils the components of a just prayer and the eight names of God Most High. Acknowledgement and proclamation of the powers contained in the heart of David and the eight names of God allowed David to love God and offer him praise so that he could be saved from his enemies. And for God, acknowledgement of the truth in his names in the heart of David gave him the basis to enable his capabilities that are contained in his eight names in battle against the enemies of David. Why eight names? In the Bible, these names are approximately 50, but here we only see eight names that David mentions. In other places, he brings up 10 other names, but here we see eight names. Why? Because eight is a number of the covenant, and these names this inheritance is enough for God according to his covenant to adopt our bodies according to the redemption of Christ I will love you O Lord my strength the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised so shall I be saved from my enemies and so, eight names of God. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my deliverer. The Lord is my strength in whom I will trust. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is the horn of my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. In a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied our lot in the powers of the two names of God, strength and rock. And we've stopped to study our lot contained in the powers of the name of God, fortress. And let us remember that this prayer in which David declares his lot in the eight names of God Most High is a strategic teaching that is meant to be the calling for kings, priests, and prophets anointed to rule over their earthly bodies. And if a person is not anointed to rule over his calling and the dignity of his earthly body as a king, priest and prophet, then this prayer will not bring him any benefit or will not produce any fruit. And so the property of the name of God, fortress, which we will be studying, has no relation to the meanings contained in any dictionaries that exist in the world. In this prayer song of David in the name of God, fortress, we see the portion and the lot of the Son of God in whom and through whom a person can run to God to know God and be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven containing the program and the time for the fulfillment of the promise of God. Any kind of seed has a program. Take the seed of an apple. Do you know what kind of program is contained in it? You can, we can plant the whole earth with apple trees. This is the program that is contained in this apple seed. It contains a program. It will, in one tree there will be many apples, and there, from these apples will be many seeds, and these many seeds will produce even more trees. This is what God's seed is like. It has a program. When you accept it, and when, and when it 
is placed in you, it expands, and God wants us. He says, expand your lot. God wants our lot to be expanded, expanded, and expanded, and not remain in place. As soon as a person stops expanding and growing the knowledge of God, he begins to... Um, he begins to fall away from the faith. And in Hebrew, the name of God, fortress, is defined by scripture as the abode of God, the dwelling of God, the sanctuary of God, the approachable light in which God abides, the place where man knows God, the opportunity to be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven. We know that among saints who have accepted salvation, there are very few who are able to fertilize themselves with the seed of the kingdom of heaven. When they hear the word about the kingdom, they listen to it as slogans. It ends up in their head, but it can't end up in their hearts because their hearts don't have the reproductive function that is able to be fertilized by the seed of the word of God. We have a sister, but she is young. That's why we cannot marry her. God marries those who are perfect, who is like a tower, like a wall, who has Lumim and Durim and the truth of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who unveils this truth. And furthermore, the fortress of God is the hope and trust in God, the atmosphere of God's success and God's joy. Basically, the fortress of God is a place where God abides, in the limits of which we can acknowledge God and be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven. If, of course, we have left infancy, infancy is when people are swayed and influenced by various kinds of winds of teachings. These people or these infants, they don't accept the authority of God. They say, we listen to a lot of other preachers. We listen to this one and that one. Well, when you, while you are listening to all of these other preachers, you cannot be fertilized by the city of the kingdom of heaven. You need to have one man, not many. We know that the place where God abides is in three dimensions. It's in the height of the heavens, in the sanctuary that is known as the body of Christ, and in the face of God's chosen remnant, and in the heart of a person who is humble and contrite, and who trembles before the preached word of God from the person whom God clothed in the powers of his fatherhood. This person clothed in the powers of his fatherhood, he has this seed, this revelation. When he preaches, this word is a seed. If a person is not a father, he can preach as much as he wants. His word will never be a seed. Even if he takes and repeats the same sermon of the Father, if he is not in the one spirit with the Father, and he simply is a thief who takes these words and attributes them to himself, this word will never bring anyone any benefit because in order to speak this word, it's necessary to be a father according to a calling to have a revelation, to be one who reads, 
to see. God doesn't reveal to his truth to everyone. He has this order. He reveals it to one person, and then through this one person, he reveals it to everyone. Can you imagine the order in a body? The body of Christ has the same functions that the body of a person has. The body of a person functions and depends only on the head. This head does not have a brotherly counsel. It does not counsel with the liver, with the kidneys, with the colon, with the ear, with the eye. Absolutely not. That which the head does, the body immediately manifests and fulfills. And if a cell does not, uh, does not submit to the head, it's cancerous. This occurs in the body of Christ. When a person does not have understanding that in the body of Christ, in any community church, there is only one person who can be the reader. The rest could be their waters or other purposes or they can fulfill other purposes in one spirit. But they can't contend for the fatherhood of God. And if they do contend, as uh, three men in Scripture had done, they thought that they were the relatives of Moses, that they were walking into the presence of God. And as soon as we see where they ended up in, you will say, how come these people are not there today? They are there today. They just don't feel it. They don't feel that the earth has already divided and swallowed them up. They have no salvation. These are chafes that must be gathered. These are the called, called many called, but few are chosen. Oh, excuse me, these are the chosen, not the called, but these are the chosen who will end up in calamity and perdition. There is more of them. These are all people who are prepared for perdition. Why? Because they themselves made themselves so. They don't want to pay the price in order to be chosen. They don't want to accept the order of God. They say, I have my own head, and I don't understand this so. I've also seen, had a vision, God gave me a revelation. God will not give you a revelation about the church. If God needs to give a strategic teaching about the church, he will give it to only one person. Remember this once and for all. I think you remember this very well. But because many listen to us, that's why this is repeated um, also in their address. And at the same time, that developing the significance of the inheritance contained in the name of God fortress would not lose sight of one unquestioning pattern, that God can be our fortress under one condition if our heart will be his fortress. If our heart is a fortress of God, only then can God be our fortress. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. Well, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
для Царствия Божия. Луки 9. Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. According to the words of Jesus, entering into the portion of the name of God, fortress, is possible when fulfilling three conditions. First, our heart is called to be a fortress for Jesus where he can lay his head. And for this, it is possible, or it, excuse me, it is necessary for our heart not to have holes for foxes and nests for birds. Holes for foxes when a person acts toward uh, prophecies by not placing prophecies on top of the pedestal of priorities. This person has holes for these vessels and these so-called prophets. These prophecies do not coincide with the truth of the word of God. He has birds for nests. He has strongholds, his own self-strongholds. He says, I don't agree with this in the church, or I don't agree with that. Apostle Paul calls these strongholds. He says, we will destroy these strongholds. Second, it is necessary to allow the dead to bury the dead. These are those who represent that category of parents who, being believers, rejected the truth offered by him, as well as paying the price to be a disciple of Jesus. Third, when following Jesus in the fortress of our Heavenly Father, it is necessary not to look back and turn our eyes to our nation, the house of our Father, and our corrupt desires, so that we are not like Lot's wife. The significance of the Lot contained in the name of God fortress as the house of prayer is the strategic teaching for us that is meant to conduct a prayer that gives God the basis to be introduced into our lives in order to fulfill His desires which He offered to us in His legislation. It is also one of the most important and necessary disciplines of truth that are called to participate in our salvation as well as our coming to power over our calling that is comprised of the adoption of our body by the redemption of Christ. And so, our law in the name of God, fortress, becomes one of the primary goals toward which all redeemed by God must strive to and place on top of the pedestal of priorities. From this it follows that the name of God most high and the dignity and purpose of the fortress is the place where, despite various circumstances and times, we must run to in order to receive help, and the place where we are called to know God, abide in God, and be fertilized by the seed of truth in order to grow the fruit of the Spirit. We must study and establish how or on what conditions God can be our fortress so that we can know God and be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of of heaven and our spirit. There nobles shall be from among them, and their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 21 through 22. If the nation of God sees, accepts this man, then this people will be a nation of God. If they do not accept this person who will come from his midst, 
и они не могут быть его народом. И таким вождем, Because in Christ Jesus, we are called to draw near to God. And this, again, this word, draw near, contains the abilities that give a person the ability to be fertilized by the seed of the promise that relates to the door of our hope, with the fruit of which God will receive the basis to enter into battle over our body in order to destroy the power of death in our body. So that with a sound, Our old man can be forever cast out of our body, whose weapon is the power of death. The power of death is the law of Moses, the service of condemnation. When we are born of God, we do not have... The power of death represents the holiness of God, the law of God. It doesn't exist in people of this world, but as soon as we are born again, we receive the power of death. How? Well, how if we are born of grace, you might ask? Yes, by grace. By grace, we receive justification. But as soon as the law is present there, it's this law sees the old man reigning sin, and it immediately turns against it, it condemns it. The law of condemnation, the power of death, and the old man trust in this power. It is its weapon. The law gives power to sin, and sin becomes reigning. We receive justification not as a belonging, but as a deposit, and for it to become our belonging, we need to exercise, or we need to, excuse me, abolish this power. We need to ride to reigning, die to reigning sin. He who reigns over us is our husband, and when we die with the death of the Lord Jesus, when we die to our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires, then the law, the law of God, the power of death, does not have any relation to us. It becomes our weapon. We then take this power of death, this weapon, which this old man trusted in, and we take our body as our belonging. We begin to rule over our body and give it up to be a, a slave of righteousness. To draw near to God means to approach the altar, proceed to the knowledge of God, enter the sanctuary of God, draw near to God, to resort to the help of God, find ourselves in the fortress of God, to be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven, to cultivate fruit, to offer God. With this kind of definition, the law in the name of God fortress contains different shades of meanings and depending on the situation and time is multifaceted. And we've noted that the name of God and the dignity of fortress in our heart is called to be the legal right to a relationship with God through knowledge of God and His knowledge of us. Second, the name of God and the dignity of fortress placed in our heart in Christ Jesus is called to place the promise on the account of man, which God has placed in the fortress of his name, which man, for certain reasons, has not accepted 
в нашем новом человеке еще не была сформирована детородная функция. Because in our new man, we do not have the reproductive function yet or the organ that could be fertilized with the seed of the kingdom of heaven. Third, the name of God and the dignity of fortress is called to bring the power of God into all spheres of our life, to give us the ability and opportunity to draw near to God, and in this manner be fertilized by the seed of every truth. And subsequently, as a result, in the law contained in the name of God, Deliverer, we receive the opportunity to bear the fruit of truth in order to be clothed in the dignity of His light and cast out the old man from our bodies into the underworld. And so each time God, through the Holy Spirit, allows a person to run or draw near to Him, then as a result of this closeness, we will always have a coinciding fruit in the sphere in which we run to God. That sphere in which we run to God is that sphere that has become a fortress for God. That sphere that becomes a fortress for God in our essence, this gives us the opportunity to draw near to God. And so it is we in each individual sphere of our life are responsible for creating such an atmosphere that could give God the basis to be our fortress. In this atmosphere that is called to give God the basis to be our fortress is the good soil of our heart that can accept the seed of the word of God and produce fruit that coincides to the seed that was accepted. If you have accepted the seed of the promise, the seed that you accept, thus the coinciding fruit you will, you will reap. And this decision is in our choice to carry the responsibility for our vocation. And it is our decision whether or not God is our enemy, an avenger, or avenger. Until we make the decision and fulfill our obligations in a covenant with God, God will not have the basis to become our fortress. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. The phrase that Jesus had spoken resisted the will of God. Immediately, he forbids it, and he says, he replaces it with the phrase, that will be humility before God. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. As soon as he had expressed the will of God, then he immediately received access into the fortress of God and helped angelic help until he had spoken and expressed his agreement to the will of God, he couldn't have this help from his father and he couldn't enter into his fortress. Despite the fact that he was the son, the son of man, the son of God, he prayed, Lord, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. But he knew fully well that the father, if it wasn't his will to take this cup away from him, he had come in order to drink from this cup. And he, subs and he says, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. And then he immediately changes this 
phrase and says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. From these words, it follows that the building of an atmosphere that would give God the opportunity to help us and give us the strength to come to Him is the mutual and daily work between God and man in which a person having sovereign rights could give God the legal right to become a fortress for us based on his irrefutable conditions. Whereas God, as an answer to this kind of favor of man, could receive the basis to become a fortress for man, where man could run to fulfill his hunger and thirst for knowledge of God and gain the favor of God in the seed of the kingdom of heaven. Considering this kind of a union between man and God, it becomes faithfully important to define the role of God and the role of man in each sphere of our being. And for this purpose, just as we did in the previous names of God that are called to become the lot of our salvation, we will need to examine the following questions. What characteristics and categories define our inherited law in the name of God Fortress? What purpose is our inherited law in the name of God Fortress called to fulfill in the realization of our salvation? What price is necessary to pay in order to give God the opportunity to be our fortress? And fourth, by which results should we define that God is truly our fortress in the realization of our vocation? So we must study ourselves to make sure we coincide with the answers to these questions. Without clear and comprehensive answers to these questions that we can receive through instruction and faith in a strict order in which the body of Christ functions, we will have no opportunity to put into circulation the silver and dignity of our deposit of salvation. And second, through unquestioning obedience to the preached word of the man who has the authority of the fatherhood of God and his assistance, we will have no way to make a profit in the fruit of truth from the deposit that we put into circulation. As it is written, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen to the glory of God through us, through us, through the apostles. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Not through any kind of pastor. If this pastor is not an apostle, then this pastor is a water. He's not a father. It means that he needs to have an apostle, the apostle from whom he can receive the seed, and with the seed, water himself and those who are under his responsibility. In a certain format, we have already studied the essence of the first two questions, and we have stopped to study the third question. What price is necessary to pay in order to give God the opportunity to be our fortress? And let us not forget that the foundation for God that gives him the opportunity to be our fortress is the word that comes from his lips, which he magnified in the temple of our body above all his name, and clothed this word in the status of his law, and he made himself dependent on his word, being vigilant over it so that it could be fulfilled at the time appointed by him. During our previous service, we've studied the five conditions that the fulfillment of which makes our heart a fortress for God, which in turn gives God the basis to become our fortress, the place where we can know God in the preached word about the kingdom of heaven.
The sixth price for the right to draw near to God is comprised of the ability to let out a sound through the presence of golden bells upon the hem of the robe all around between pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet. Exodus chapter 28 verses 33 to 35. And so this was necessary in order for a priest to come into the sanctuary, he had to, be, he had to wear this. Upon its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. So, if these bells are not rung or not sound, and we enter into his uh, holy place, we will die to God, and God will spew us out of his mouth. We know that the sound that the golden bells make, which are found upon the pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, is referring to prayer in tongues that creates an atmosphere for the fruit of holiness that is presented in dignity of pomegranates. Speaking in tongues is the result of baptism in the Holy Spirit, or the result of the Holy Spirit accepted in the format of a deposit. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Justification is given as a deposit, and baptism in the Holy Spirit is also a deposit. If this deposit is not placed into circulation, we will not receive the Holy Spirit as our belonging. We will not receive justification as our belonging. The Holy Spirit accepted by us in the format of deposit with the gift of tongues to become our property by becoming master and ruler of our life it is necessary to use the power of tongues to separate ourselves from our nation, household, and corrupt desires and to engrave the reigning teaching of Christ on the tablets of our heart. The calling and purpose of tongues fulfills its goals when we comprehend its values and purpose and when we exercise them according to the norms established by Scripture. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The importance of tongues, as well as the importance of ordinary language, consists in a supernatural ability to bring death or life in order to bridle our body and clothe it in either justification or condemnation. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Based on this, I would like to recall those immediate areas in which, thanks to the exercise of prayer in tongues, we can edify ourselves in the holy faith. 
Thanks to the cooperation of tongues with our faith, we receive the ability to dedicate or bring ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Hebrews 9.14. So if the Holy Spirit would not be there, the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ would not have used it, he could not have been lifted up on the cross. It turns out that the Holy Spirit was along with him on the cross. He was in the Holy Spirit on the cross. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, brought himself blameless to God. So the Holy Spirit, who is very little known to us, and according to these words, a sacrifice or prayer that is not exercised in the Holy Spirit will never find favor before God. Baptism in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues, as well as baptism in water, are called to immerse us into the death of the Lord Jesus in order to abolish our dependence on our sinful bodies reign over us which reigns due to reigning sin that lives in our body in the face of the old man. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If we would have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Romans 6, 3-7. This is referring to when the old man is bound in our body and the corrupt desires that constantly brought us many difficulties, tears, will stop having an influence over us. We will no longer depend on them. We end up in the liberation of Christ, a certain kind of euphoria. When I had felt it, this was something so unreal. When my corrupt desires stopped bothering me at all. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is a sign of the covenant expressed in the circumcision made without hands, called to take off our sinful bodies that through the resurrection of Christ, we can be clothed into a heavenly body. We must accept this by faith and call the inexistent as existent. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2, 11-12. The word about the cross is called to work only in the spheres of baptisms. It is in baptisms that we are called to lose our souls so that we can gain them in a new form in the resurrection of Christ. The sign of a lost soul in baptisms is a sign that serves as a guarantee and conditions for our rapture in the resurrection of Christ. A soul that is lost is when we bear Methuselah. He who banishes death is the name of uh, this name. And after the birth of this son, Enoch began to walk before God. Before this, he couldn't walk before God. And now he began to walk before God. And this was his testimony that he, or his evidence that he was going to be raptured. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men 
one will be in the field, the one will be taken to the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Luke chapter 17, verses 34 37. Where will the, there be a sign of death, a sign of these baptisms? Because many who had accepted baptism or been immersed through baptism, they lost it because they don't understand why they're baptized in the water, why they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They don't understand their meanings and their baptisms cease to be baptisms. Baptism are given to destroy our earthly nature. And if you speak in tongues, but your nature is not uh, bound. I had spoken with a sister at one time by phone. And she got very excited and began to swear. And her swearing uh, turned into praying in tongues so that she wouldn't swear. I said, why are you swearing? And she begins to speak in tongues because if she doesn't speak in tongues, she is going to swear again. Uh, there are people who say evil words, bad words, lie to one another and speak in tongues. And there are people who live in seduction, who are bothered by their carnal desires and they speak in tongues. You see, the tongues cannot then benefit this person because they don't know how to cooperate with the cross of the Lord Jesus so that they could die, so they can consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God and call the non-existent as existent. Prayer in tongues is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that is given to us for our good. This is not the only manifestation. Speaking tongues is one of the many manifestations of the Holy Spirit that is given to us for our good. Each one but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for profit for all. Different kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. We must know that Different tongues are always speaking in tongues, but speaking in tongues are not always different tongues. Speaking in tongues is meant to be the bit that helps us obey the Holy Spirit, the writer, whose interests we must serve. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. In James 3.3, our lips are called to govern us, rule us. The words that we speak, if these words are negative, they begin to rule our body. We say, oh, I can't do this. I am unable to. I feel something. I feel that the Lord has left me. As soon as you begin to proclaim what you feel, God does leave you. But when you are not dependent on what you feel, but you are dependent on what you know, because faith is not in motions and does not, is not based on the sphere of motions, but it goes based on what we know. Faith is from hearing. Faith is information. And as soon as you know who God is for you, what God has done for you, who you are for God, then you begin to resist your feelings. You begin to thank God for this promise. And your feelings are going to change, and they're going to lead after you. We are called to lead our feelings like a good rider controls his horse. We must not have our horse control us, or rather, our emotions. Speaking in tongues 
представляющего господство в нашем духе, который направляет нашу веру туда, is meant to be a rudder in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the captain of our faith, so that he may direct our faith wherever God wants it. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Furthermore, speaking in tongues is meant to bring peace to the burdened and weary. For with stammering lips in another tongue, he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. The prophet Isaiah had mentioned that tongues, that is unknown to our mind, is called to bring rest to our weary heart. When you do not know how to pray or what to do, you just say, Lord, teach me, and you begin to pray in tongues. Or you take one of the Psalms of David or one of the chapters of Apostle Paul, that in these chapters he just highlights how he prays for the churches. You take the same prayer and you can pray in the same way. Speaking in tongues is a law and statutes established by God to daily free us from the law of sin and death and slavery unto our desires and our lusts. Blow the trumpet at the type of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob, that this he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went through the land of Egypt. When I heard a language I did not understand, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. Psalms 81 verses 4 through 7. Some people think he heard the language of the Egyptians. I don't think if he were to see, if he were to hear the language of the Egyptians, then he would have been freed from the, the burden and the baskets. He had heard the sounds of the revelation to himself, the sounds of tongues that did not coincide to what he felt. This revelation, he heard these sounds, and these are sounds from that dream that he had, that vision that he had, that his brothers will worship him and now he's in captivity. And they're in captivity. He had heard the sound. He had spoken. He said, that which I have shown you, it is in power. It is drawing near. Speaking in tongues is a supernatural opportunity to glorify God. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Acts chapter 10, verses 45 to 46. So they not only spoke in tongues, but they began to even uh, praise God in their own language. They had received this through interpretation, because before those Gentiles were not able to uh, to praise God in their own language. And now they had spoken in tongues and they spoke in their own ordinary language. They said, I will pray in the spirit, I will pray in the mind. Because if I speak only in the spirit and sing only in the spirit, then my mind will remain without fruit. And this is dangerous. As soon as the mind remains without 
fruit, uh, there will be all kinds of thoughts that come upon us. People ask me, how come I'm having all these thoughts during prayers? Because you need to begin to pray in your mind and tongues so that you can proclaim who God is for you and what God has done for us. So we say, Lord, I thank you that you have delivered me from slavery and decay. And you speak this, and your mind hears this, and it is edified. And in this time, devil cannot send any kind of thoughts there. Speaking in tongues is edification of oneself. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. Speaking in tongues is edification of oneself. That's why when you are in communication, fellowship with one another, well, yes, when we have um, a prayer together, Imagine if I was to preach right now in tongues, you would say, what is this? We don't understand anything. Yes, truly, I can preach in, tongue, in tongues. I do it by myself at home, and then I, I interpret it. I preach. Um, and then I interpret what was given to me at home in the spirit. I then take this revelation um, and present it to you in the format of a sermon. People say, the Holy Spirit, I don't say the Holy Spirit revealed this to me. The Holy Spirit did this to me. If I do this, I am going to magnify the Holy Spirit, and this is not correct. The Holy Spirit is... Uh, saddened when we magnify him because the goal of the Holy Spirit is for us to magnify the word of God he magnifies the word of God and when we magnify the word of God and he gives revelation we magnify the word he rejoices he is glad the Holy Spirit is the person who magnifies the word of the Father the Holy the Son is the person who uh, speaks the word of the Father he says I speak that which my father had thought we must understand these things. We must not offend the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is the ability to offer fruit of righteousness in our spirit. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? You see, when I pray in tongue, I... What happens if I bring fruit of the Spirit? I won't have fruit of the mind. Furthermore, it says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. First Corinthians chapter 14. Speaking in tongues is the whole armor of God that is given to us so that we can withstand the powers of death. Take a look at how Satan hates it. When you are in some kind of net or trap, when you begin to pray in tongues, then he doesn't understand what you're praying about. And he can't send his legions there. Because when people say, Lord, you see how difficult it is for me, don't tell you where it's difficult for you in your life. Satan will automatically uh, gather his legions and send them over to that sphere in your life where you are having difficulty. He will send a few legions there, and a person says, oh, I knew it, God has left me. As soon as you begin to pray, and speak it to God, um, the legions are sent. Speak in your like in your in your secret room, or pray in tongues. You devil doesn't need to know what sphere you're struggling in. Struggling in. Ephesians chapter six verses eleven and eighteen. Now pay attention, please. All these purposes and results can be legitimate only in those people who, through instruction and faith 
have accepted the Holy Spirit and the three-dimensional essence as their Lord and ruler, by virtue of which they have received the ability to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be led by the Holy Spirit. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26 The Holy Spirit can intercede for us with unspeakable sighs on one condition if we have accepted Him into our hearts on the conditions of Scripture as Lord and Ruler of our lives. Sighs. You sigh, but don't speak anything. And in these sighs, the Holy Spirit places a mystery that only God knows. He sends these sighs into, to the Heavenly Father. He takes your pain, your mystery, your secret, and He expresses it in sighs. This means that sometimes we must learn how to pray quietly. I do this oftentimes. I come before God and I am quiet, I'm silent. I have come to God and say, I've come here to be silent. When you come before the face of the Lord, the first thing that you should do is be silent. We need to first be silent in here and listen, and only then carefully unleash, release sighs and then begin to speak. For the Holy Spirit to dwell in our three-dimensional nature, it is necessary that there is the order of God in our hearts and the dignity of the commanding doctrine of Christ, creating in our hearts the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. And to engrave the reigning teaching of Christ on the tablets of our heart, it is necessary through instruction and faith to cleanse our hearts from dead works by denying our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires which in practice means that through instruction and faith to conduct total sanctification in order to totally dedicate oneself to God. Sanctification is a process that will last until we literally receive our new bodies, our heavenly bodies. Total sanctification will last. Sanctification is purification. The blood in the body of a person purifies him every second, continually. It brings life, oxygen, and simultaneously it takes from every uh, blood cell, takes toxins, takes toxins out, and then it um, expels them from the body. This is what all the things that the blood does. There's the same way that the blood of Christ works in the purification of man, but it works only in the body. When we walk in the light, as God walks in the light, and we have communication with one another, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. You see, sanctification is not an encounter. An encounter is a very, very scary form of Satanism, of delusion. When Satan had offered for a person an easy way, he, said, he says, oh, you only need three days to fast and you're going to be sanctified and holy. No, no, no. You accept the sanctification and every day you are sanctified, a priest sanctified until 30 years just that he can, he can dedicate himself to God. Then he dedicated, he consecrated his dedication so that it is not um, met with any any foreign impurities, so that it does not come into contact with any foreign impurities. 
From this it follows that people who are unable to accept the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of their lives because of their infancy and carnal nature, although baptized in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues, do not understand true holiness and do not have the fruit of holiness. This category of people, being led away by various winds of teachings, cannot be kings and priests to God due to their cunning art of seduction, and therefore they cannot resort to the fortress of God, nor do they have any need to resort to it. The golden bells that were located on the helm, excuse me, the hem of the holy garment, producing a sound during worship in the sanctuary of God, is an image of a person with meek lips who is anointed by God. This person represents the authority of God and the interests of God in ministry to God. Therefore, speaking in tongues without the presence of the fruit of holiness are empty words that are not verified by the fruit of meek lips, which will be incriminated as sorcery and witchcraft. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And this is truly so. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When it says bears all things, it means that it bears those things which God bears. Believing all things means it believes all things that God believes in, hopes all things that God, hopes in all things that God represents, endures all things. When the time comes to endure for, under trials for the truth, this is what this is referring to. And to summarize this component, if we do not comprehend the conditions of total sanctification that pursues the goals of total dedication, we cannot have holy garments, and therefore, we cannot have golden bells that could be found on the hem of the garment near the pomegranates. And therefore, if by remaining in this state we think that we are running to God, then we need to seriously think about whether or not our own intellect is our deity, or is our deity some kind of other demonic spirit which we call the Holy Spirit. The seventh price for the right to draw near to God is comprised of bringing a sweet incense into the presence of God. This is also an interesting element if you enter before the presence of God without it. For example, you have garments, you have these bells, and if you enter without incense, then you also will, will die. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Господним, и облако курения покроет крышку, которая над ковчегом откровения, дабы ему не умереть. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 to 13. Yes, physically we did not die, but our prayer dies. And then we lose an interest to pray. We stop believing in prayer because we see that it doesn't work. 
the reason is in us and not God as to why our prayer isn't working. And to comprehend this price for the right to draw near to God, it will be necessary to study what in our tripartite essence is the golden altar of sweet incense. Because without its presence, the golden censer for a sweet incense loses its importance and not serve for us as a legal right to enter into the presence of the Most High and run to the Almighty as our fortune. Second, what in our tripartite essence is the image of a golden censer? What in our tripartite essence is the image of sweet incense? Being fine? These three sacred things in worship and service to God are so closely tied together that if we are not taught how to gain them and how they work with one another, we can never have holiness, which in turn could give the holiness of the Most High the right to dwell in our tripartite essence, thanks to which we could run and draw near to God. And so the first question, what in our tripartite tight essence is the golden altar of sweet incense. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be a square and two cubits shall be its height and its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends, to, when he tends the lamps, and he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer a strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. This is Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. We should pay attention to the initial material out of which the altar for incense was made. And we should pay attention to the form of the altar for incense and its measurements. Furthermore, we should pay attention to the fact that the altar was molded with gold. Fourth, we should pay attention to the two gold rings placed on their two sides, which will be holders for the poles made of acacia wool overlaid with gold. Fifth, we should pay attention to the golden censer and its ties to the altar of incense. Furthermore, we should pay attention to the incense that was called to be brought on that altar of incense and golden censer. And finally, we should pay attention to the burning coals without which it would be impossible to raise an incense. And so the first question, what represent an apartheid essence is overlaid with gold? The acacia wood is known as the Egyptian acacia wood. Based on the fact that the altar of incense was made from acacia wood, it follows that in the three-dimensional essence of man, acacia wood represents the image of justification that was received in accepting salvation at the time of birth from the seed of the word of truth. Considering that all things related to priesthood are, skill, are skillfully faked by the seductive spirits of lies, acacia wood is used in different rituals and in various secret communities. This is clearly seen in the descriptions of various dictionaries and encyclopedias of secular sources.
Acacia belongs to the legume family and is well known throughout the world as it not only grows in most countries, but is also a symbol of some of them, as well as the object of many legends and works of art and literature. White or yellow clusters of this tree, familiar to modern people, blooming in May, actually have a thousand-year history. Gardens and houses were decorated with acacia, and acacia was used in medicine and religious rites. There are likely no trees on the planet that are more revered for many centuries by representatives of different civilizations and cultures than acacia. The uniqueness of this tree was noticed by the ancient Egyptians, who believed that it simultaneously symbolizes both life and death since it blooms with white and red flowers. In many cultures, the acacia tree was a symbol of purity, Nomads traveling through the Arabian desert considered it sacred and believed that those who broke the branch of this tree would die within a year. Ancient inhabitants of the Mediterranean believed that its thorns drove away evil spirits, so they decorated their homes with torn branches and thorns. Egyptian acacia tree, whose description is found in the Torah, was a symbol of purity and holiness to ancient Jews. From the wood of acacia, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the poles of the tabernacle were made, in which the Ark of the Covenant was originally stored, and it was also made from Egyptian wood. For Christians of the Middle Ages, this tree symbolized purity of thoughts and innocence. Therefore, houses were decorated with its branches. Acacia oil was used in rituals by various secret societies, and priests smeared them on the altar and golden censers. Regardless of where the acacia grows, it has the features that are characteristic of the whole family. It has a strong root system that grows to a great depth and has a branching closer to the soil surface. This helps the plant to extract not only water, but also useful trace elements. The Egyptian acacia is quite a large tree. It grows up to 40 to 45 meters in height. The trunk of such a tree can reach a volume of up to 1.5 meters, while all its branches are strewn with horns. Its flower time is June. That's why the birds don't sit on it. Do you understand? Uh, there's no nests. They can't. That's why it is an image of justification. The Egyptian acacia is a rare species of wood that is not afraid of drought. It grows well on desert and saline soils where any other breeds normally die. It grows very fast. Acacia is not afraid of any pests and it is not overcome by disease. Moreover, it is a soil improving breed. The tree grows mainly in height, and the trunk remains slender, covered with a bark of a grayish-brown hue. Trees are covered from top to bottom with many sharp spikes and barbs, and not only branches but also trunks. Birds never nest on them. Acacia wood is strong enough, while a beautiful pattern is still visible on it. That's why uh, furniture and other household items are often made from it. So I wanted to intentionally read you the beauty of justification. When a person has defecation, justification, he will have this kind of beautiful pattern like acacia wood. 
this is what the altruism must be made of and the Ark of the Covenant all of this is made from this beautiful wood and that's why it is justification if there's no justification you cannot overlay it with gold into the Torah authority of kings and we're talking to a kind of justification that is received as a belonging not that is a deposit but that justification that is already ours the second question, what in our tripartite essence is the form of the altar of incense and its measurements made of acacia wood called to represent? Despite the fact that both the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon had a rectangle that could not represent the image of perfection, the altar of incense represented the image of perfection as it had the shape of a square because the length and width of the altar of incense corresponded to an, one elbow. In Hebrew, the elbow is a part of the arm, it's a measure of length, something that diverts anger. So, this kind of altar diverts anger. It's the hinge on which the door hung in revolt through which God can enter, and it is justice of the law guarding holiness. This is what an elbow means. It's not just a measurement of length. It is also a subject that diverts anger. It is a door, and it is justice of the law. Thus, the length and width of the altar of incense and the measurement of an elbow is the ability to measure oneself on the subject of independence from the law of Moses in our three-dimensional essence. The law of Moses was a rectangle, was rectangular, and when we were looking at uh, Jerusalem, it was square. This is a perfect form. And that's why here it demonstrates for us the perfection of the law of grace, independent of the law of Moses. Considering that the height of the altar of incense was two cubits in the format of a double square, it follows that the independence from the law of Moses consisted in the perfection of the law of grace. The perfection of the law of grace was determined by the status of the firstborn in Christ Jesus, to whom the double blessing belonged. In scripture, the symbol of that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, of which is said, we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. David writes in Psalms, 92 verse 9 through 11. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. In another place of scripture, Psalm 74 verses 10 and 11. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. The four horns that emerge from the design of the altar of incense are an image of the power of the reigning doctrine of Christ, operating in our three-dimensional essence in the four base teachings, each of which contain a threefold nature. The two poles made of acacia wood on which it was necessary to carry the altar of incense is an image of our dependence on Thummim in the dignity of the commanding teaching of Christ and Urim in the dignity of the Holy Spirit who reveals this truth in our hearts. Third question, what role does gold fulfill which overlaid the altar of incense? The gold which overlaid the altar of incense, its horns, and the poles on which the priests wore it 
are an image of justification present in our three-dimensional essence in the dignity of priests who reigned through the righteousness of faith, acting through the love of Christ. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 5 verse 21. The fourth question, what were the two gold rings placed on their two sides, which will be holders for the poles made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and what was the crown for? The golden crown that was laid on the altar of incense and formed a single hole within is an image in which, in our three-dimensional essence, the throne of David is established, from the position in which we are called to reign over our calling or our vocation. The image of Aaron in our three-dimensional essence is our new man. Two gold rings placed on their two sides, which will be holders for the poles made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, is the image of the statutes of the Lord, on the foundation of which we are called to be led by the Holy Spirit in the boundaries of the commandments of the Lord that are contained in the four teachings. Considering that our time has come to an end, we're going to talk about these things, about the golden censer, about its... Um, cooperation with the altar of incense at a different time. But right now we are going to bow our heads, bend our knees, and we will thank God for that word that we were able to have today. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to you that today we are able to stand before your face and listen to the words of truth. Perhaps not all of them could be understood by us today, but this is for our benefit, for our good. Those words that we cannot understand, allow them to place it into the vessel so that I could be full, filled with oil. But those words that we did understand, we can immediately pour them into the lamp and to fulfill. May your mercy be blessed for your nation forever and ever. May those who war with your people be cursed. May your saints be free from decay, lust in their hearts and the world and their May they call out to you so that you can help them bind the old man with his works so that they could feel the liberation of Christ in their lives, so that in full liberty they can worship you. He who does not yet have this, allow them not to, to be doubtful, but to begin to call the inexistent as existent, to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to you. This is pleasing to you, favorable to you. You do not impute to man those sins that live in him if he does not agree with them, and if he declares them as dead, and if he proclaims that he has died to them, you view this kind of a person as mighty and a hero, because he does not follow what he feels. But he follows what you have spoken to him. He pursues your word and he builds his building on a rock, 
upon your word. May your mercy be blessed for your people forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now let us manifest our unchanging manifest. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.